0: Thank you so much, Pastor Eric. Thank you, Colin, Pastor Colin, for the powerful music. And thank you, brothers and sisters, for being here on a Friday night, a Friday night. And we are going to think about the image of God and then manhood, womanhood, uh, tonight and tomorrow as well. So, uh, man, so fun to come down from Kansas City uh, here to Texas. Uh, we do have a barbecue issue to sort out, but uh, I've been told I'll be having brisket tomorrow. I am partial to Texas brisket. I won't lie. I think think you have that. I think you have the brisket, just so you know. This is what you came for tonight, to hear the barbecue commentary. Tomorrow, by the way, I will have my square application, and I'll be selling some books, a book on anthropology, and then uh, others on lust, homosexuality, and transgenderism. So You can buy those books tomorrow if you're interested. We'll see if the content gets you to that point. We're going to think first in our four sessions about the image of God. And what I'm going to do in this uh, session is largely going to be kind of a theological and cultural overview, just so you know. This isn't going to be as exegetical, as biblical a section as the following three sections or sessions will be. This is going to be more of an overview uh, so that we set the stage and we understand what we're up against in 2020 in terms of uh, teaching and celebrating and promoting the doctrine of humanity that scripture teaches. So that's what this session is going to be. 50 years ago, the question landed like a bombshell on the cover of Time Magazine, is God dead? Now, death of God theology had debuted many decades prior in the West. Atheism was not a new phenomenon, but in April 1966, on the cover of time, many people heard for the first time about the death of God. One professor went so far as to introduce a new liturgy for the age marking God's death. He adapted Psalm 23. He was our guide in our stay. He walked with us past tents beside still waters. He was our help in ages past. He is gone. He is stolen by darkness. Heaven is empty. I do not think Fellowship Church will be adapting that for the Sunday liturgy. Let that be said. In time, through such liturgy, it became not only possible, but even fashionable to identify as an atheist or at the very least a skeptic in the West. Fast forward 50 years later. In our time, a new question has emerged in the West. Is man dead? So we've already killed off God effectively in the West. That happened about 50 years ago, according to voices in our culture anyway. Now we're in the process of killing off man, meaning we're re-envisioning the human person. For millennia, humanity was understood in light of God. Mankind was made in the image of God. and So the human race and various religions argued this in their own form, but in a collective sense, many different spiritual beliefs argued that the human race had certain duties before God. Now, they weren't all the same. They weren't all leading to the one true God. Nonetheless, there was this shared general belief by most people living in Europe and America, certainly, that I'm a human person, I was made by God, and I have certain duties before God. And religions, of course, disagree about what those duties are and how to get about them. Mankind then is fundamentally a spiritual being. That's the key point for us to think through. For millennia, for basically all of human history, humankind has been understood as a spiritual being. But with the rise of the death of God theology, mankind is no longer seen as the creation of Almighty God. Mankind today is being altogether re-envisioned. What we're going to do now is look at five common views On the human race. We're going to go at rapid-fire pace, I promise, and then we're going to look at a sixth view, the image of God. Five views on mankind today that are popular, that are in schools, that are in colleges and universities, that are in your workplace in some form. You turn on the TV, there's going to be some representation of these views. This isn't just fancy academic theology that we're talking about tonight, okay? It may sound that way. Thus far, this may sound high-flown. It's not, it's not. These are ideas that are traveling into, let's go to our context, the American bloodstream, the Texan bloodstream, the Missouri bloodstream. These ideas are here now. First view, man as mere matter. And yes, there will be a quiz at the end. First view, man as mere matter matter. The prevailing view in academic circles today in intellectual settings is that mankind is a blank slate. That is a very important term for you to for you to track, blank slate. This follows from an evolutionary worldview. As many of you will know in the evolutionary worldview there is no creator God. There is no creator at all. There is no creation. There's no creational act. There's just gases that happen to be there in the cosmos and that spontaneously combust forming, and I know it sounds crazy, but hey, people a lot smarter than me argue this, forming ever increasing degrees of complexity leading up to you, you beautiful people. Yes, it's the truth. So humanity in the evolutionary worldview has no divine origin. It only has an accidental origin We are here on accident. Okay? No one within this system planned for us to be here. No one has designed you. You don't have divine dignity. If you kill someone who is a fellow human being, that's unfortunate, but you're not killing anybody, anything special. No creative figure guided the human race's formation. No one has shaped your identity. No one has planned out your days. There is no purpose behind your life. There is no meaning on the earth. You and I, I repeat myself, are accidental beings. We have, in fact, no real distinction from the beasts at all. We're just a higher animal. For you and I to argue, for example, that we have more mm, rights than the household cat or dog, depending on what which person you are, cat person or dog person. We won't get into that. We've got enough controversial material for the weekend already. <laughs> but you, believing that you are of a higher order than mittens or spike or whatever it may be, is you committing the sin of what is called speciesism. You think that your species, the human race, is higher than cat species or dog species or gerbil species or squirrel species, whatever it may be. In this worldview then, there is no distinctive beauty and glory and purpose to the human person. So it's nothing special when a baby is born. It's no more special than when kittens are born in, the, in this worldview. Mankind is mere matter. We are atoms colliding for a time and then they won't collide anymore. Then we'll go into the ground and everything fades to black. And that's the end. That's it. Friends, people believe this worldview. This is a real worldview. This isn't just something in a textbook. This isn't just something that's taught on a college campus or a university setting. This is how many people are living. They're living according to this. They think they are mere matter and everyone else is mere matter. They think the baby in the womb, mere matter, clump of cells, yes? This is a position on humankind, and it has cash value. Second cultural view today, very popular as well. Humanity is a technological project. We're a technological project. In other words, the same way that very well-paid computer professionals design our software and basically everything about our modern lives, We ourselves are software that you can hack, that you can get into and redesign and reconfigure. Some of you may have heard of the best-selling book Homo Deus. Homo Deus, you go to your local Barnes and Noble or go to your local Amazon website and you will find the book Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. Homo Deus, again, best-selling book, so not a little bitty book we've plucked out from somewhere, uh, random, says the following homo sapiens, that's us, is likely to upgrade itself step by step, merging with robots and computers in the process until our descendants will look back and realize they're no longer the kind of animal that wrote the Bible, built the Great Wall of China, and laughed at Charlie Chaplin's antics." End quote. According to this worldview then, mankind is an animal. Now this fits with what we were talking about a minute ago, We're constantly evolving. We're evolving upward, and this is where the two views are slightly different. One day, in fact, we are going to be robot-human hybrids. That's where this is going. We are going to augment ourselves, adapt ourselves, such that we eventually all become a robot-human hybrid. This is called Transhumanism, and this is a major view as well, that's gaining cachet, gaining popularity. Hollywood was here way before academics showed up. Hollywood has been featuring movies for decades actually, showing us robot-human hybrids. Now, you may think that's crazy. Christianity has no place for that. I would never buy into such a worldview, really. How many times a day do you check this, if you're honest? How many times a day do you look down at it? How many conversations does it interrupt? How many times with our kids does it break into? We are actually, more than we are aware, buying into the project, buying into the view that we are technological at nature, that we should be hacked and we can change ourselves. Now, of course, there's all sorts of positive uses of technology. Some of them are being used right now. uh, So we can admit that readily and happily and we want Christian engineers and problem solvers and all sorts of things. But we have to be aware that this isn't just about making our lives smoother or having better medicine or something like this. There is also a worldview that is pulling at us. It's pulling at us. It's clutching at our heels, and it wants us to buy into it. It wants us to believe that we are nothing more than technology. And if we will believe in that, and if we will adapt Christianity to that, there will be dire consequences. You see, Colossians 2.8 tells us that we should not be taken captive by worldly systems. This is what is swirling all around us all the time. A lot of the time without those systems or those who promote them announcing themselves, they don't usually knock on the door and say, hi, I'm a worldly system. I'm bankrupt of godliness. I would like to take you captive. What do you think? That's not normally how they announce themselves. They, they filter into things. They creep into the air. They're on your TV and you barely know it. They're in the commercials that pull at you and you don't know why. They're in the movies you enjoy, the songs you hear on the radio or your podcast as you're exercising and you're not even thinking about, but all of a sudden there's a thought placed in your brain that you didn't even know. And that thought, if allowed, like a seed will grow into a plant and the plant will grow into a huge tree and will become a full-fledged worldview that has taken you captive. And so you have a great challenge in your Christian walk with the living Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're a pastor or not, elder or not, it matters not. You must not be taken captive. You, you have the responsibility as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ to not let any worldly system take you captive. And worldly systems are coming for all of you, all of us, in different ways. They're coming at us all the time. One of them, as I say, is that we are nothing more than software to be upgraded that we will eventually put an end to death itself. That's actually what Silicon Valley technologists, the ones who increasingly really do run our lives, even to the point of telling us on Twitter what we should think is true and what is not true, giving us little guidance uh, nudges uh, along those lines now on a regular basis. Those Silicon Valley leaders believe that they will put an end to death itself. That's what Homo Deus, this book, argues. We're going to solve every problem facing humanity, eventually we're going to solve the problem of death. Now you can understand why they would want to tackle the problem of death. It's a pretty big problem. Nonetheless, you have to also understand that there is a rushing wave of secularism behind this philosophy, godlessness, naturalism, that believes that there is no such thing as sin, and that believes that there is no such thing as a need for Jesus Christ to come back and make the cosmos right. What we need is technology. Friends, be careful. Be wary. Don't let any system take you captive, and don't let your phone take you captive, and don't let technology in general take the place of God in your life. Third cultural view. Man as expressive, therapeutic being. Man as expressive, therapeutic being. Therapy is everywhere. Yet again, one of those things that doesn't usually knock on our door in the morning, but is here. It's the air we breathe. It's the mindset we constantly find ourselves surrounded by the therapeutic uh, in, in major form as a system that Westerners believe originates most significantly with Sigmund Freud, roughly 90, 80 years ago. He's the founder of what is called psychoanalysis. From its beginning, the goal of psychoanalysis is the salvation of the suffering self a uh, good first times first things art, article on this uh, count recently came out and said much this point the goal of psychoanalysis a therapy is the salvation of the suffering self so what do therapists in a secular sense do well they seek to reveal what is deep within us that brings out our suffering. So if you go to a secular therapeutic session, you will have a therapist try to effectively peel back the layers of your personal experience and dig deep into your past to discover what it is that is causing suffering in you. Let's say a quick word here from a biblical worldview. There is all kinds of suffering in the world. Suffering is terrifyingly and terribly real. And we all suffer in some form and we who are sinners all suffer at the hands of sinners and we who are sinners all cause suffering in some form. So we actually have a very thick real category for suffering. We don't wave it away and dismiss it. Nonetheless, the question is how is suffering defined and how are you addressing it? Question is not does suffering exist in this world? Of course it does. The question is, what do we mean by suffering and how is it addressed and solved? That makes all the difference, the way you answer those questions. Within a Freudian perspective, merging into the modern one, the way we realize our identity is to become our true self. So therapy writ large, there are different camps and schools of course, but writ large as a system believes that we are all hindered in different ways from being our true self, probably through some force and uh, form in our youth, our childhood, our family, our religious upbringing. And so now we need to become who we truly are. We're all not who we truly are. If we go to a therapist, they will help us become our true self. You almost hear no slogan more than that today, in some form. You should be true to you. I don't wanna get in the way of you. You should do you. We hear this in all sorts of ways. And the outworking of you becoming your true self is that you should then express your true self. You understand? So you have a true self. Your family might try to stifle that. Your church might try to squash that. Your your friends and your, your setting, that might try to rob you of that. Society in general may be taking away your true self. What you need to do is own your true self and then express it. Another very important modern word for understanding humanity today. You should be free to express yourself. So once you identify your true self, then you need to express yourself. And then the last point along this chain, others need to affirm you. You need to affirm me. If I can condense to just two A words, I need to discover who I authentically am. Authentic, I need to be authentic to myself. Who am I authentically? That's what I need to do according to this new vague modern spirituality that again is hard to pin down but everywhere. That's my end of the bargain. Your end of the bargain is that once I discover my true self, you need second a word to affirm me. You need to grant me affirmation and woe to you if you don't. Because remember, Life is about me discovering who I authentically am without any influence from anyone else. You can't tell me who I need to be. Society can't tell me who I need to be. My parents can't tell me who I need to be. My church can't tell me who I need to be. I tell myself who I need to be. And then I tell you once I've found it out. And then your end of the bargain is you do nothing to impede that. You better not. You need to affirm me. Authenticity and affirmation. Welcome to American culture 2020. This is already moving like a, a, an unseen gas through all lever, levels of our society and culture, and it will only continue to do that. For everybody to think of themselves as going on this quest for authenticity and then, for everyone to require society to affirm them as they are all from a therapeutic worldview. I need to be true to myself. A fourth cultural view today: Man as sexualized being. Man as sexualized being. This worldview, again, quite popular, all around us argues that the most important part of who we are is who we sexually desire. So my attraction patterns are a very important part of my authentic self, who I truly am. And you can see already, we're not going to spend much time on this because we're going to be talking about this one the next several sessions. So we'll just put a few words down here, but you can already understand how within modern spirituality, if my sexuality is basically the most determinative part of my being, I'm going to need to discover my true sexuality, right? And what's the second part? You're going to need to affirm it. Sound familiar? Does it not sound like this is the cultural playbook today? Does it not sound like this is what the church, the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ is up against at every turn? It absolutely is. This is a clash of worldviews that has been playing out and is going to be playing out more and more and more. Now, God has given us many gifts. God has made us man or woman to his glory. God has given the human race the gift of marriage, sex within the gift of marriage. And so, we're not ashamed of about these realities. We're not down on this. We're not trying to downplay it as if this is some terrible subject that we don't want to talk about any of these things. Nonetheless, we need to make very clear that there are many things we need to say about the human person that are important to us, not just our sexual attraction pattern. And furthermore, nothing in us is outside of the reach of sin and the grace of God. In other words, there's no part of you or or me where I can say, well, this is true to me. This is a fundamental part of who I am, but that's not sin. That's just me. There's no part of us that we can close off to the Lord and say, sorry, Lord, this is who I am. You can have the rest of me. You just can't have this part. And then there is no part in a more positive sense that the grace of God cannot altogether transform. The grace of God is not intended to transform 16.7% of you. The grace of God is not intended to transform the parts of you that you want transformed. The grace of God, as Steve Lawson has said, is not a makeover. It is a divine takeover. It is God taking you over. That is not the normal way that conversion and coming to Christian faith and trusting in Jesus Christ, even in evangelical settings, conservative evangelical settings, is often portrayed. But that is the biblical reality. This is God executing a glorious takeover in which no part of us, feelings, thoughts, identity, past, desires, is closed off to God and to His grace and to the Holy Spirit. Every part of you is up for grabs with God. And God will have all of you. He is a jealous God. And praise God that he is. People all around us though. Are running to hell. Through this view. All of these views. But through this view. Through believing. That they will find lasting wholeness and healing when they are free to embrace their inmost, rawest, truest desires. And that is exactly the opposite of what will actually save them and free them. Look, you may have inmost desires. You do. We all do. We all have passions in us. None of us emailed a friend or called a family member during lockdown season in past months or whatever form it is now here and elsewhere and whatever form it may be in months to come and wrote the following words. I, this has been challenging and what has been most challenging for me is I have really struggled to get upset with people around me. It has not been hard <laughs> in month after month of panicked lockdown to, uh, to find opportunities to express annoyance. Has it? I, I won't, I won't, we won't raise hands here, but I, I'm going to wager. <laughs> Why? Why not? Because we have passions and desires in us, don't we? They're strong in us, aren't they? They're stronger than we know. They're stronger than we want to admit. They're stronger than than we think. Good thing we have Jesus. He's the only one who's a match for them. Now take away Jesus. People are all around us being driven to hell by their desires and their passions and their lust. These are strong forces in us. This is a very dangerous game that people all around us are playing to think that their, their sexual attraction pattern and desires tells them who they truly are. They are right that those are strong forces in them. They are wrong that those are salvific forces. Those those desires and passions need to be crucified. Not in every case need to be wiped out, of course, right? Desire, for example, for a spouse is supposed to do what? Drive you into marriage, isn't it? It's supposed to cause a young man to go, dad and mom, thank you. I love this deal. I'm out of here. I need to create a new family, and it's, it's supposed to cause a young woman to go, Dad, Mom, thank you as well. He's here. I'm going with him. Is that okay? Well, yeah, there's a whole courtship process we should talk about. But I think, you, I think you get the point. I think you get the point. It drives us into marriage. This isn't that. God made it that way pre-fall. We're going to talk about this with manhood in the next section. Adam cries out with delight when he sees Eve. Yes, he's not indifferent to this. She's not indifferent to him. God wants couples to love one another in a holistic, beautiful way. So these are strong passions that God created, but they are not meant to be the Lord of the human person. And that's the problem. Our culture wants to enthrone these desires as Lord and tell people their inmost identity is determined by them. And it is not. It is not. Fifth cultural view. The, the last of the ones I need to cover before the biblical one. Man as racial being. Man as racial being. This is the one that has really sparked this year basically in our society and culture. It is driven by the idea that who we are in terms of m- most personal importance is our skin color or the group that we identify with racially. There is a system of thought called critical race theory that is leading people to think of themselves in racial terms. Critical race theory is hard to track and it will be hard to even delve into it briefly here. Interestingly, next weekend, I'm in Abilene, see Blake White here, I'm gonna speak for Blake on Christianity and wokeness. If you want more on this, the gospel and wokeness that is, if you want more on this next Saturday, It's a whole-day session. I don't think any of you are going to be like, I want this guy two weekends in a row, me. But uh, anyway, we're in Abilene next weekend. I'm excited to do it. Critical race theory, hard subject to cover, but very quickly, it's the idea that society is structured along racial dynamics, personal identity is found in race in this particular context, Race is a social construct. So critical race theorists of the kind who are in secular colleges and universities having tremendous influence today do not argue that race is something fixed, something essential, that's the term. They argue that it's a social construct, it's something that we've created and then projected value onto. In that sense, I actually, as a Christian theologian, agree with critical race theorists but here's where they and I and others like me diverge. Critical race theory argues that the solution is not for us all to claim our common humanity in Adam and then Lord willing in Jesus Christ. No, we need to recognize that whiteness is the major driver of these racial imbalances and injustices that are everywhere in this nation. Okay, let me speak a little more directly. America has a ton of white people in it. And white people have constructed a system that is called white supremacy. And white supremacy is not just slavery and Jim Crow, it surely is that and there's another point where a lot of us would agree. Those are white supremacist systems. They are horrific and evil. We're so thankful they have been torn down. Nonetheless, critical race theory says, no, 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 no. White supremacy isn't over. Every white person benefits from this system at all times. America is built off of white supremacy. White people, whether knowingly or unknowingly, are at all times bringing their their white power dynamics to bear on all interactions. And so minorities are naturally in this country being kept down, disadvantaged and are suffering from white supremacy. The solution here then it's especially targeted as I say at white people, is for white people to acknowledge that we are inherently fundamentally racist and therefore what we need to do is to become anti-racist. It's not to become colorblind, it's not to become Uh, a believer in shared humanity of all peoples, it's not to see race as a social construct and realize our fundamental unity in Adam, none of these things. No, according to Ibram X. Kendi and others what what white people need to do is confess that they're a white supremacist and then the rest of their life know that they're always going to tend to be a white supremacist and work against themselves. This is a view that is causing tremendous chaos and division in American society and also in the evangelical church. It is true that America has major failings when it comes to this subject. It's flatly true. It's not true that that's all we have to say about America. America also overcomes tremendous racial evil. Praise God, Christians are very important in that movement, as are many others. So we don't, we don't need to see America as this unblinkingly evil country, unlike other countries out there. Sadly, sin is everywhere in this world. Nonetheless, we do confess, we have a very checkered past on this count, but it is not the same thing to say that there are massive problems in the 19th and 20th centuries, and then to say, and we have the exact same problems today. It is very clear that, all of us have the seeds of racism and ethnocentrism in our heart. In other words, no one has to coach us on how to be a sinner in these kind of areas. We can all commit the sin of, of thinking we're better than others, showing partiality. We can all do that in many different ways, not just racially or ethnically. Uh, think of the book of James, for example, along class lines of these sorts of things. So we all have the seeds that can, that can grow up into racism and ethnocentrism, but I very much want to caution you against a worldview that teaches that all white people are especially guilty of a certain sin, and that there is not a gospel solution for that problem, but there is this kind of ritual acts of atonement that you are supposed to perform as a white person this is a This is a fundamentally divisive ideology that is teaching, especially on the college and university campus, white people, that they are white supremacists. Someone could be that, but I do not believe that scripture leads us to the conclusion that white people are fundamentally white supremacist. I think that is a a very dangerous teaching. I think it is an unbiblical teaching. And if embraced as a system in a Colossians 2.8 sense, it will take you over and it will take a church over and it will cause division where once there was unity in the gospel. Friends, our fundamental unity is not found in anything in this world. It is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is not something more we need to unify us than the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, Ephesians two eleven to twenty two, is that which makes one new man. It's not Jesus' best effort at making one new man. It's not God trying to bring diverse peoples together, but mm, he can only get it so far down the field. The cross of Christ makes one new man. That's actually Pauline language. It's not God attempting to do that. It's God doing that. We can compromise that unity. We can act sinfully. We have. we know this is possible, and yet the solution to racial and ethnic division is not for one group in any society or culture to, to think of itself as extra special sinners. The solution is for us all to recognize that we are one in Adam in our sin, sadly, and we are one in Christ in salvation. That's what we need. Further, quick, quick word, we don't want to think that anywhere there's a majority culture, there's a lot of people who roughly look the same or have the same background, however you want to frame that, that that is necessarily an inherently fully wicked culture. Majority culture can be bad. Majority culture also may not be bad. So you have to handle, this is a complex matter, you have to handle majority culture carefully. You, you need careful thinking on these things uh, in, in a way that is not always found today. We want to say then that God has made us who He has made us. God loves every tribe, nation, tongue, people group found in Jesus Christ. We know this from the book of Revelation. We know this from Revelation 5 and Revelation 21. The nations of the earth, the ethnos in the Greeks streaming into the New Jerusalem. So we know that God has made us in whatever skin color, pigmentation, or lack thereof we have for his glory. We don't need to be ashamed of this. We don't need to be blind to it. What we do need to do is we need to recognize that there is something more than the way we look. There's something more than where we're from. There's something more than ethnic background. There's something much more significant and important. And it is again, the blood and the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. These things are not of no value or of no importance, but they are certainly not of ultimate importance. So where do we go to answer our culture? Let me just sketch this very quickly in our remaining minutes, just a few minutes. We go to the image of God. I've already been talking about it, but we need to go to Genesis 1, 26 and 27 to ground this textually. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Okay, what is in view in this passage? This is on the sixth day of creation. I believe an actual day, 24 hour day of creation. And this is the creator God who is just created by speech now saying that man is to be made in his image. What does this mean friends? This is the constitutive word on who human beings are in any book ever written at any time in history. This is the most important first truth. There are other truths to stack up, but this is the first one on the first page of your Bible. This truth that every person is made in the image of God means that man is made by God for God. Man is made by God for God. And there is a sense in which man looks like, so to speak, God. We're an image. We're a little picture of the divine, in the ancient Near East, when a king would go on a trip, maybe a military conquest or something like this, he would leave a little figurine uh, right right on his throne. And he's gone; he doesn't have FaceTime, right? But he's gone. But that little figurine was the representation of his rule. So he's 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 out of town. But don't you dare think he is saying to potential rivals to said throne that I have left my throne, my throne is occupied. Here is the image. That is the language that is associated with humanity in verse 26, did you see that? They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being therefore is a little tiny picture of God, a little tiny picture, distant glimpse, that is, have to understand that rightly. Nonetheless, this is the clear language of scripture. We are a little bit of a representation of the divine. The fact that there are human beings walking around is a signal to fellow human beings, to all of us, that there is a God, and he reigns, and he rules. How different is that from these other secular views? This is a spiritual, view of humanity. And what is the corollary of this? The corollary, again, is that we are made by God for God. That means that there will be no meaning, purpose, fulfillment, happiness, pleasure, choose it, outside of knowing God. That is the only way to understand who you truly are as a human person. And who you were made to be. It is to know that you were made in the image of God for the glory of God. You were made specifically to be a part of the rule of God on the earth. You are not just like the fish. You are not just like the birds of the sky. You are not just like the livestock, the creatures that crawl on the earth. You are made to rule over them. You are made to take Dominion of the entire earth. Humankind, therefore, is what is called in theological terms a vice-regent, a sub-king, a sub-ruler. That is who we are. We are not atoms colliding. We are not the product of chance evolutionary processes. We have been designed and made by God, and all our days have purpose because of that. Every second you breathe is a second given you by God for his glory. And he has a purpose for your existence. Every human being who is ever made is made by God and is made intentionally anyway for God. The fall of Genesis 3, a real historical fall by a real historical Adam, means that now We do not honor God as we should. We do not do what we should. We all go astray without any coaching or teaching. Nonetheless, humanity is still made in the image of God. To put a point on it, we are still image bearers, to use that term. Every human person you see, I believe, is an image bearer. It's not that there was the image of God here in Genesis 1, but then the fall wiped it away so that humanity no longer is made in God's image. People are no longer longer image bearers. The fall has corrupted the function of our humanity, what we do, what we think, what we say, absolutely, to the fullest possible extent, total depravity. Yet, humanity is still the race that bears God's image. 1 Corinthians 11.7. Man is the image and glory of God. And by extension, the woman is as well. Man having headship, of course. I think that's what Paul, why Paul says the man is the image and glory of God. Man and woman then, by extension, are image bearers even after the fall. This means that when you are seeing a little baby on a sonogram, you are looking at a tiny picture of God's own image. When you are seeing those pictures that emerge from the sonogram, you are looking at a being that even in a mother's womb has immense dignity and worth. And so every child in the womb is an image bearer. And so abortion is the worst evil that could be perpetrated by a people on planet earth that we would go after the most defenseless among us and attack them when they can't even defend themselves it's not even a fair fight it's not even close to a fair fight and that we would then take that ability to kill them through technology and not only say we can do this but say this is a good this is a moral good this shows us what i was just talking about This shows us depravity. It is only a truly barbaric people that does that. Welcome to America. Welcome to Babylon. This is what we do to our unborn. We have perfected this. Those babies in the womb are image bearers. If the church stops speaking for them as it seems increasingly we're just going to do. We're just going to stop speaking about this. It's a it's a jump ball. It's a conscience issue. If we stop speaking about this, truly these babies in the womb have no one to speak for them. Let the church reclaim the image of God. Let the church remember what makes humanity humanity. It's not just having breath. It's not just having the ability to think or move around or things like this. It is being made in God's image. The child with Down syndrome who grows up, uh, s- stays at home, can't necessarily live outside of the home, but has a real joy about them, um, you know, has some challenges that they face in terms of thought capacity. That person is an image bearer, again. A few years ago in Britain, you say, Strand, I know this, I know this, this is obvious. No, no, it's all under attack. If God is dead, man is dead, remember? It's, this is all playing out. A few years ago in Britain, there was a TV show where a, a person with an adult with Down syndrome was led around on this show, millions watched it, and helped to understand the cost of their existence to society. I think the total cost was something like 5 to $10 million. The clear implication was, you cost us too much. You cost too much. So we need to abort, again, babies with Down syndrome. This is is where it goes. It's an either or, friends. This is a, in terrifying terms, kill or be killed world. In terms of the Christian perspective, it is either kill sin or it will kill you. It's kill or be killed. In terms of the broader culture, the society we find ourselves in, Matthew 5, 17 to 20, this is be salt and light or, or, or you're not going to be able to be. The image of God is meant to be a doctrine you take with you. It's meant to put boots on the ground. It has cash value. It it takes you somewhere. The image of God matters, wrapping up here, concluding, when it's the end of life, when you go into the home or, or the, you know, the nursing home or the bedroom in the family house, whatever it may be, and your loved one is there, and they are They are breathing their last. And you look into their face and they can barely recognize you. That person is an image bearer. They should not be euthanized. They have not lost their value to the rest of us. It is costly to care for people who can't care for themselves. You've got precious, adorable little babies in here, for example, it is costly to do this. Parenthood doesn't involve sacrifice, right? (laughs) Parenthood is sacrifice, yeah? All of it, okay, anyway, that was for free. Uh, (laughs) When we are seeing people at the end of their lives, even though they cannot care for themselves, even in the most basic, even in the most basic ways, hard way to end, nonetheless, That person is an image bearer. The image of God tells us who we are. Mankind is made in the image of God and no one can unmake us accordingly. So friends, where does this go? This is the foundation. This is how we come to begin understanding who who humanity is, who we are made to be, and who we can be by the grace of God. Because the image of God actually won't get it done, will it? Just affirming that we are made in God's image, won't get it done. We need to actually be remade in the image of Christ. Talk more about this to come. Let's be those, let's be those who contend for the image of God. Let's be those who speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Let's be those who care for those who cost us, who cost us so much, remembering the one who died when we cost him everything. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would make good on the image of God. I pray, Lord, that we would take this truth with us. I pray that it would frame the way we understand manhood and womanhood, which we are going to transition and consider. This is the foundation though, Father. This is how we understand who humanity is. This is how we ground our efforts to tell the truth about what you made us to be originally in Adam. Father, even though we have fallen, all of us in Adam, even though we are all totally depraved in Adam, yet there is a certain dignity to the human race that we are called to contend for. Help us to do that, Father. Help us to make good on it. Help us to be practicing it in our everyday lives, in our homes, in our context, in our churches. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.